0: actually think this is much of a big one. Um, But the Goliath is looming. I put it at the end for this purpose because you all are not supposed to be here right now. You're supposed to be tired of this sermon series already. I'm supposed to just be preaching to Brett. You knew that, right? And Christian, because let's be honest, he's always eager. But here you are. Here you are, all of you. And we can't avoid it. This Goliath that has been looming, casting the shadow over the church. Truth be told, human sexuality was not actually requested at Pub Theology. It was not. I lied to you. (laughs) The topic that was most requested at Pub Theology was homosexuality. And one person got real brave and asked for the topic of transgender sexuality. What does the church think about these things? Note that that was not what I titled this sermon. We cannot talk about homosexuality or any particular orientation of sexuality without beginning first at human sexuality. And so I changed the topic. We will get to what you wanted to hear in a little bit. But let's start with a wider conversation first. Odds are, whatever view you came to church with today, you often leave with that same view on this topic. I'm not really sure if anybody is ever really convinced by what we say up here related to this. And the shadow of this giant just continues to loom larger and larger. And as I was writing this sermon this week on the topic of human sexuality, Goliath seemed bigger than ever. I don't know if you know this, but the United Methodist Church is this close to schism over this topic. Goliath looms, and a shadow has been cast over all of God's people. And so we must have a change of perspective, or we must at least be willing to have a change of perspective to begin this conversation. We'll get to the topic, but let's first start with human sexuality. What is this thing called sexuality, and what is a proper theology of human sexuality? Y'all still with me? Like Y'all didn't leave after Leviticus, so (laughs) this is good news. (laughs) This is really good news. Here's what our book of discipline says about sexuality in general. We affirm sexuality as God's good gift to all persons. We call everyone to responsible stewardship of this sacred gift. I'll read that again. We affirm sexuality as God's good gift to all persons. We call everyone to responsible stewardship of this sacred gift. Our best theologians say that sex within the human experience, is a means of grace. A means of grace if in the hands of a God who can sanctify us. That's, that really gets in the mood, doesn't it? <laughs> so sex, in the context of our theology, is a means of sanctification in the hands of the living God. It is a way of us practicing having rightly ordered desires to practice fidelity and gentleness and grace. Within our theology, there is no way to separate spirit and body. There is no way to separate body from spirit. Every spiritual act within our faith has a bodily incarnation and every bodily act in our faith has a spiritual participation and sex is included in that. Within our theology, sex is a means of grace. It's a way of us participating in being sanctified, us being made more perfect. It's us working um, with God and God working with us to make us better lovers. We believe that that Physical expression helps us be more divine. Human sexuality is the way we participate in God's ongoing work of creation. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about procreation here. I'm talking about us participating in being made better lovers who look and live like the God who has met us. Faithful. Attentive, responsive, sensitive, passionate, gentle, caring, even longingly, even lavishly. That's why when we get together and we talk about this, we say we affirm sexuality as God's good gift for all persons, and we call everyone to responsible stewardship of this gift. Pastorally, I've walked with people who have misused this gift. I've seen this gift abused in ways that create hell on earth, addiction to pornography, Infidelity, even neglect can cause hell on earth. I've watched this misuse break people, but I've also watched it save people. I have been in hospital rooms and at bedsides when couples. Who have been faithful to each other after a lifetime of attending to each other's bodies can now attend to each other's bodies in a different way. With just a touch, a whole dimension of healing breaks in that no doctor could give. With just a little wink and a joking double entendre. Smiles can break through the worst pain and despair someone could ever imagine. Lying there as bodies are failing, I've watched couples who have tended to each other's bodies intimately for a lifetime be able to care for each other in the moment of deepest vulnerability, without shame and without ever looking away. No matter how those bodies have changed, That doesn't just happen. This is the gift of people attending to the presence of physicality together over a lifetime of being shaped to love each other's bodies. They've been sanctified through fidelity and attention and grace. And so that's our theology of human sexuality. Any questions? I will not take questions today. <laughs> okay, so that being said, the topic of various expression of that sexuality, it still looms on the horizon. It's still that Goliath that seems insurmountable and indestructible within the church and without, of the, chur- without the church. Almost every survey, especially among younger people outside the church, 18 to 34, if you ask them what they think about the church, they always, always talk about human sexuality and how it is seen in a negative light. Almost always. Christian, negative view of human sexuality. And that doesn't just mean the topic of homosexuality. That means youth groups who have done... Grave injustice for years to the topic of sexuality as they begin to teach 13-year-olds what it looks like to be intimate with one another. Within the church, Goliath's shadow is cast over us as well. For the last five years, every single professional magazine I have received and by the way, there are professional magazines for pastors, if you didn't know that. Every single one I get has a like, front-page article about the next new thing they're talking about, about the topic of human sexuality. Goliath looms large. And I've felt that shadow all week as I've written this sermon, because unlike war and peace, unlike marriage and divorce, unlike capital punishment, I cannot just slap Up on this screen, the United Methodist Church's words about homosexuality and go, see, go and believe, likewise. Because over 50% of United Methodist Church pastors and laity and bishops in the U.S. haven't agreed with our words for over a decade, if not four decades, some of them who have been working that long. We in the United Methodist Church are not of one mind on this topic. And I would venture and guess that we're not of one mind in this congregation as well. We are all someplace on the spectrum. Some are in one camp, and they cling rigidly to the part of our book of discipline. And I'll be honest, if you may not know this exists in there, some of you might, Um, but some cling rigidly to the part of our book of discipline that says that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. And they say, if you change any word of that, I'm out. I'm out. I'm leaving the church. We have others who cling rigidly to the part of our discipline that says, all people are of sacred worth. And we implore Methodist congregations and families not to shun people who identify as LGBTQ. So we're not of one mind. I assume we're not of one mind here, even. We've got people on both ends of the spectrum. And so I know you felt the Goliath looming, I felt the Goliath looming, and so let's begin. <laughs> As Goliath stands looming, I want us to have five stones in our hand. David had five stones. We are going to tackle this giant with our five stones. Four of them came from Pastor Wesley. One of them comes from Pastor Michelle. If we use these stones rightly, Goliath doesn't have a chance. The first one is... Scripture. When facing conversations like this one, what does Scripture say? That's always the first place we begin as Christians. We have to begin there. You listen to the debate, though, and you'll quickly learn that it's just not that monolithic. You can't just simply pick up Scripture, read the Bible on this topic, and come away with a clear conclusion about what it says and what it doesn't say. There are five pieces of scripture in the whole Bible that talk about homosexuality. Anybody anybody, pick up a Bible recently? <laughs> Y'all are Methodists. you don't pick up Bibles. Well, go home, dust it off, <laughs> pick it up. It's a gigantic book, and there are only five scriptures in the whole text that deal with the topic of human sexuality or homosexuality, and they deal with it indirectly, truthfully, within a bunch of other stuff most of the time. If you read them out of context, it seems like you're reading some kind of morality code. If you read them in context with the rest of the trajectory of scripture and the rest of their pericope, which is the The scripture, the body of scripture that we read today, how we how we selected that piece, the conversation is not about the expression of sexuality, but it's about covenant. And I know I keep returning to this word, but this is it's the whole Bible, really. The conversation is about covenant. like, Like what we heard in Leviticus today. Have you ever heard that full passage read in church before? Have you? No? It's not in the lectionary that was purposeful. <laughs> uh, we would rather not read this. The Baptists know it, though. Like, they, they know this, this scripture. And not necessarily because their church preached this scripture as being the way, but because they deal with scripture. They do. They do it well. So you read it, and the first thing you've got to ask yourself about this scripture today is, who wrote this stuff down? I mean, was this really a big problem? (laughs) I mean, look, the goats, off limits. (laughs) Your mom, really, stop, stop. And so all the way through, you read it, and it sounds like this, this morality code, but actually it's a guide to covenantal living. Did you hear, well actually you didn't hear it in the, the version, I should, have put the, um, I should have told Hilaire about, um, about this version, that's my fault. Um, but there's one version of it that has belonging language. It says, don't sleep with your mom, she belongs to your dad. Don't sleep with your dad, she belongs to your mom. And because there is no category for covenant among same-sex people, That meant if you were in same sex relationships, it was extra covenantal. It was outside of the covenant at this point in time. We are covenantal people, and our human sexuality both participates in and displays that covenantal fidelity. The second stone is tradition. What does the tradition of the church say? About this. Again, it's not monolithic. It's not one thing. I wish it really was. I wish it was easy. I wish I had a simpler message for you. First of all, the earliest Christians didn't get married. The earliest Christians didn't even have sex because they thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow. This was not a thing on their radar. But after a month went by, two months went by, urges happened, right? And they began to live into a new way of being together. They started getting back into relationship with one another. They started thinking long term. And then the Roman world began to sneak in to the church's notion of relationship. And suddenly the church was in the wedding business. All of a sudden. You know, in ancient Rome, infidelity was rampant. Among all sexual orientations, it was just something you did. It was not moral or immoral or amoral. It just was in Roman society. And you know, the church says we are a covenantal people. And so within our bounds, physical expression of love only happens within covenant. And while these these Romans seem to be dealing with this infidelity thing there with this some kind of ceremony and so let's be a part of this ceremony and so from that point on people of homosexual transsexual bisexual orientation they existed but from that moment on they were left out of the conversation and they have not had full access to the covenant since the moment we began to say we're covenant people That being said, some of our best theologians, some of the theologians that shaped your mind and your theology, even if you do not know it, the church mothers and fathers were gay. Wesley says that the third stone we have to have in our pocket is reason. How do we think about this? It's intensely Methodist, intensely Wesleyan to think about reason, to deal in the realm of reason, because Wesley never allowed us to leave our mind at the door. It's important what we think about this. When it comes to things of faith and how we as people of faith think and move in the world, this is it. And I have to say, from my seat, this is where we've changed the most. It's almost like I don't even understand it, but we have changed the most in this category there was a research done in 2004 by pew research center that concluded that the majority of christians had a negative connotation towards homosexuality that same study was then done in 2014 and they did the research again and 60 percent of christians had changed their mind i wonder if you're one of those maybe maybe you are one of those Maybe over a decade your, your mind changed. Our reason has grown. We've been in conversation for over 50 years or more with persons in the LGBTQ community, and we've realized that this is not a choice. We've also begun to realize that LGBTQ teens, 40% of them attempt suicide. Those of us who have walked with people, talked with people who identify as LGBTQ, are challenged to find out their story, and they share with us the pain and the frustration they've had in finding a place in the church and a community of people who can help them understand all of this. And something about that conversation has started to shift our minds a bit. The fourth stone that Wesley talks about is experience. And for me, this is the most formative one, I believe. I know staunchly relatively normal, good-hearted, conservative people who find out that they have a family member, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, and because they know them, they change. Our experience shapes us deeply we can run through the same four, the same four things: scripture, tradition, reason, experience. We can, I admit it, we can run for, through the same four and give the other side of the story. There are scriptures that seem to condone, to condemn um, homosexual behavior. We can't get away from that. There's tradition in the church of not marrying or ordaining those who are openly gay. We can't get away from that. It exists, though that's rapidly changing. Within our reason, some would say that procreation is the goal of sex, and so reason can't be a part of this, because you can't can't procreate if you're homosexual. And within our experience, there are people... Who have experienced deep hurt and pain within the LGBTQ community, just as you have experienced deep hurt and pain in the church, and so you some have come away thinking that the entire worldview is broken. You can see how this can be argued on both sides, and so Pastor Michelle gives the last stone. It's you. You who are the last stone, community, together. It's the only way that we can knit these four together and make them a viable force against this Goliath. You, whether you are on one side or the other, have determined to be together in conversation to be in communion with each other no matter what, to figure this thing out together, what it looks like in today's time and world, you've you've committed to being a part of that task. You, together in community, is what makes these previous four stones lethal. It doesn't mean that it's less scary or less complicated. The shadow is still there. It still looms. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything that someone else in this congregation believes and says and advocates for. But it does mean that you take unity seriously. I think that's what differentiates the church today, churches that begin today, with churches that began in the 1950s. The 1950s way of doing church is The pastor says something I disagree with, and the next Sunday I will be out the door. (laughs) The new way of doing church is we have committed to be in conversation with one another no matter what. We take unity seriously. The astute listeners today might notice that we have not mentioned Jesus at all yet in this sermon. Anybody notice that? Because Jesus doesn't talk at all about this. He doesn't even bring it up once. It doesn't seem to be a topic on his mind at all. It's way more important to us than it is to him. And we can learn a whole lot from the story of the transfiguration where Jesus says law and prophet And yet, this is my son. Listen to him, even to what he doesn't say. We can learn a lot from this story, and we can learn a lot also from the way that Jesus prays. We have one instance, Jesus Jesus doesn't pray in public very often in scripture, but but in one instance, Jesus says, God, that they may be one, they may cling to each other as tenaciously as you and I do. It is clinging together no matter what we believe on this topic that we begin to see that this topic can actually become sanctification for us. And so if you ask me what I think about the grand schism that is approaching um, or whatever it's going to happen, first of all, my, my initial response is, uh, like I can't I can't worry about it like I don't know I don't know what's gonna happen but I can't worry about it. so I don't know why I don't I just don't worry about it I, I don't this schism that's on the horizon 2019 there's gonna be a call general conference and all about home um, human sexuality and we'll see what happens and whether we split, and what's going to happen with that? I don't know. Where's my ordination going to be? I don't know. What church am I going to be a part of? What church is this going to be a part of? Who knows? There's a lot of unanswered questions as far as this, um, this is concerned. So first of all, I just don't care. That's, that's kind of it. I don't, I don't care to worry. I don't care to worry because I can't. I can't worry. Um, but second of all, there are um, – you may be surprised. Those of you who know me even announce would know that I'm fairly progressive. And you may be surprised that I, on this topic – I listened to the words of Jesus' prayer, that they may be one as we are one. And I think that the church has a task before it to reconsider the option of existing together, that one congregation can be here and one congregation can be here, and that we have come to a place of not fully agreeing on this topic. That's where I stand. I stand in the middle on this, actually. Standing together can be sanctification for us. Sex might just be the way God is sanctifying the body of Christ. The first church I ever interned at was Rural, was in Rule Snow Camp, North Carolina. And this was not even on the map. Like, you couldn't find it on a map. Had, the closest town was Graham, North Carolina, Uh, You'd find that, but it was just like, I mean, you knew where, you knew snow camp if you knew snow camp, but if you didn't know snow camp, you couldn't find it. The first week of work at this church, I found myself in the pastor's office alongside him um, with a family, and the son in the office was weeping, just weeping, and he, he was coming out to his parents, and he wept, and he talked about the pain of not knowing why God would make him this way, feeling like, like this was brokenness, what he had, and feeling like he couldn't fit in, and feeling like his parents wouldn't love him, and he's just weeping, and the father reached over and put his hand on his son's leg and said, You are my son, and I love you, and that's that's it. That's it. And the pastor in this rural conservative North Carolina church said, I'm your pastor. This is your church, and that's it. And he and I learned to really become fond of one another, and so I messaged that pastor on Facebook this week um, as I was writing this sermon. And by the way, this pastor was a Korean pastor. This might, this might just even blow your mind even more. This pastor was a Korean pastor in the middle of rural North Carolina coming from um, a tradition an area in our church that has been um, is one of the reasons why this divide is looming. We are a, we are a global church, and so the Korean delegation, the, the, um, the African delegation the south Carol- the South America delegation those are the delegations that are preventing um, us from having that, that's, that saying stricken from our book of discipline that it 's incompatible with Christian teaching. So this is a Korean pastor from an extremely conservative culture. Um, in rural North Carolina, and he says, I'm your pastor, and this is your church, and that's it. And so I talked to him this week. I messaged him this week on Facebook, and um, he told me that um, I consider him a boy then, but he, but he, he still worships at that church, um, that boy that was sitting in the office with us. And he's still at that church, and he's in a relationship now, and he says he doesn't want to get married. Sounds, sounds like some of you actually. Um, so he said, I mean, that, he said, I'm not really sure what I do about this marriage thing. I'm not, I, I, I don't know, but I'm going to come and be a part of this, this congregation. And um, he says that the church has saved his life. He and his partner worship there. Can you imagine like 40 people? majority of them are over the age of 70 um, in rural North Carolina. And he and his partner worship there every week. And I know that church too, That couple is saving that church. It is saving it. Their presence, just by being there, is opening them up to a whole community and conversation that otherwise they'd be just drying up and dying. He's a leader in that church now. He teaches youth Sunday school. It doesn't mean that it's all sorted out. His sin is not any different than anyone else's sin in those pews on Sunday morning. But he does have a community where he can wrestle through all of this with. And that church is being forced to wrestle with him through it. And it's like they're both better off together. See what I mean? It's almost like God is using the issue of sex to sanctify the body of Christ. And if, if, we, if we split, and if it happens, we will deal with it, but if we split and we have now progressive churches over here and conservative churches over here, experiences like this will never happen. It's almost like God's using sex to sanctify us as the band comes forward.